How you doing, brother? Very well, very well. How are you? I'm not. I'm tired. I'm very tired. <laughs> um, it's 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 been a, a full-on week, and I know my body, and I know when I'm close to getting sick, and I now need to take preemptive measures to keep myself healthy. It's been a fantastic week in terms of accomplishment, but it's just been a really busy week. Working on the house, also when it comes to work, there's just been a lot going on. Um, and then obviously our side hustles are growing and growing. Not only are we doing loads of things with LVH, we've also got a amazing uh, digital accelerator program that we're gonna be working on. So yeah, just a lot to, to, to get done. I'm looking forward to next week, but it's really taken out of this week. In terms of preemptive measures, we, we spoke about this briefly earlier. And my question to you was, is one of those rests to which you laughed. Why did you laugh? I laughed because rest is the most important thing. It's the by far, by far and away the most important thing, but it's the hardest thing to, to, to get. I'm gonna be doing things like drinking herbal tea. You can see me with my mug right now. I've got my herbal tea in front of me. I am going to be doing morning exercise and stretching because I'm at that age where if I don't stretch, my, my day is ruined. Um, but I think a lot of those issues can be overcome simply by getting enough rest. It's just the hardest thing to attain. Um, but that's no excuse. I think some entrepreneurs can almost talk about their lack of rest like it's a badge of honor. I don't sleep or I barely sleep or I sleep three or four hours a night. I'm not one of those people. I love sleep. And I'm very disappointed in myself that I'm not getting more of it. But um, we make progress and yeah, we, we do what we can. And I think this week I'm definitely going to have to find little pockets where I can take a nap. Definitely. Because when many of those entrepreneurs stress things which not everyone would value. When you dig a little bit deeper, you discover that they're divorced multiple times and they don't see their kids. And you have to decide whether that is success for you. It's definitely not for me. Definitely not. What is success for you? That's an expensive lesson. Tune in next week. We'll tell you what success is. <laughs> How about you, brother? How you doing? I cannot complain. Um, I'm actively trying to find pockets of rest. Um, I'm also trying to be a better husband because um, I'm a very good father. I would say a brilliant father, but a pretty average husband. Um, Partly because I see my children as dependents and they need me. And because they need me, I pour myself into them. I'm very intentional. When people highlight certain things that they're doing, they're like, how do they do that? Well, it's because I've intentionally geared them to do that. But then I'm also now very conscious that I'm not investing the same level of time into my marriage. Um, and thus, I'm glad that I realized it because I'm now making that conscious decision to remember that she chose to be with me and she could choose not to. <laughs> um, and let us not have an expensive lesson about marriage. Woo! <laughs> um, we talk a lot about a business being like another child, having another child in a relationship. But I do wholeheartedly believe that a marriage is also like a child. Um, that both you have, both parties have to nurture um, and raise and develop. Your marriage will go from stages of immaturity to maturity. 
Um, so yeah, if you're putting, if you're not putting the level of effort into that child as you are into other endeavors, then it's not going to to grow and be successful. Now, for those people who are confused, thinking I've just been recommended to listen to this podcast, you are you are in the right place. Um, yes, we have spoken about home improvements, um, not resting, and marriage, but this is expensive lessons. Uh, the podcast where company directors speak about fruits of their labors, but more importantly, the failures in their past, which has made them who they are today. And we're extremely proud because we've got, once again, a very, very, very special guest. People, write down the name. Got names out there. Don't cuss me for mispronouncing the name. Um, but it's someone to definitely remember. Please, please, please welcome Diane Tufo. Now, Diane Tufo is the founder um, and managing director of the Afro Beauty Company. Now, she's someone who's extremely brave. Um, she's decided to delve into the world of Afro hair and beauty as a black woman and decide to be as ambitious as having a one-stop center for all of your Afro hair needs, both male, female, and children. Now, you may think, oh, I've heard of that before, but when you hear of her story and hear of the way she's trying to do it, you might realize that actually this is more akin to who you are as a black woman, a black male, someone who has interest in the black community. So without further ado, Diane, welcome to Expensive Lessons. Thank you so much for having me. Honestly, it's a privilege to be on here. Now, please, before we continue, can you just correct me with your surname? <laughs> I know I'm with you a lot, I hate I'm a bit nervous that the Ghanaians might get at me too, but um, it's Tufo, Diane Tufo. Exactly how she said it, people. <laughs> now, whenever we introduce someone, we always give a little bit of a little bit of a bio to their company, and we'll, we'll go deeper into how we met and our relationship. Um, but if you were to describe the Afro Beauty Company, how would you describe it? I would say that it is very similar to how you described it, a one-stop shop where you can get great products that are natural, organic and vegan. Great advice um, to make better informed decisions in buying your hair, hair care products, basically. Wonderful. Now, I'm really looking forward to the people who, after this, are going to start doing their Google, start doing their Instagram checks to check you guys out. Because when we met you, you stood out and you stood out largely because of you. And it was one of those instances where I realized that a great founder director can just sweep people with them. You don't even know what they're selling. They're just like, what is she doing that I can be part of? Um, hair and beauty. Now I'm about to ask a very odd question as a black male in the hair and beauty industry. But why on earth are you in this? <laughs> So it mostly came out of my frustration. Um, in 2017, I cut my hair all off. Uh, my hair has always been natural, but I was getting a little bit of breakage. I had straightened my hair um, with straighteners and I was getting some, um, some it's just some breakage overall throughout my whole head. I had a bit of heat damage. So I thought, if not now, when? Why not cut my hair all off? And go for it. So I did, and I literally cut my head 
my hair all off, as in like my hair was absolutely gone and my scalp was bold um, to the point where my scalp was even a different colour to my skin. I, I look like a Malteser when you bite into it. <laughs> and, um, and so basically when I was growing back my hair to be as healthy as it could be and to just have like great hair, I found that there was nowhere to go to that had one great product two great advice um and three in an environment of somewhere that actually looks like me and I was really frustrated by that although those kind of conversations had kind of been going on within the community and from people that did look like me nothing was done about it so I literally said to myself I'm over this I don't want to give my hard-earned coin to anyone else that doesn't look like me or that doesn't understand or that isn't selling products that are good for my hair and my scalp, I'm going to open up my own shop. And I will never forget because I, I had this conversation in church and um, it was like me and my pastor and a couple of other friends and we were just all just fellowshipping after church, just, like sharing our frustrations of what the hair care market looks like for people with curly and natural hair types and when I said it in church I think everyone was just like oh okay this is just another thing that I'm saying but the next year I was like guys my shop is literally on the way to get opened um so yeah that's essentially how the Afro Beauty Company was birthed and that is why I decided to enter this market basically wow People go to church for your dose of Jesus and hair <laughs> care stories. Um, it's interesting because listening to you, we've had um, another female entrepreneur on the show. And both of you were consumers within the industry, identified the problems and weren't satisfied with waiting for someone else to solve those issues for you. I found that extraordinary because many entrepreneurs I would regard them as almost B-type entrepreneurs. And I don't want to insult them because I think I'm one of them who we see issues, try to solve them, but we've never really experienced the problem ourselves. So we're a little bit artificial in trying to solve the issue. This is an issue which you lived with. In your opinion, does that support, does that aid your attempt to try to remedy it? Or does that make you a little bit more I don't know, infatuated just with the industry and less business savvy? Honestly, I think it's a bit of both, simply because my lived experience, I guess, gives me the um, understanding and the passion even to make sure I eradicate the issues that are currently available, although I'm not going to fully eradicate them. I would like to think that it's a drop in the ocean and that it's there's something that I'm doing to help change the narrative of the, the industry. Um, and however, I've got to be mindful not to allow my own experience to cloud what other people's experience may look like as well. I understand that, yes, this is an issue that I face, but it's a shared frustration. And that frustration might look like something else to somebody else, you know. So I'm just trying to be conscious to listen to my customers and understand what their problem is, especially if it doesn't look like the problem I necessarily had. In terms of practical steps, how have you gone about doing that? How have you ensured yeah. that it's not just your, um, your interests and your biases which revolve around the company? So I've done a lot of surveys, which for me, I, I felt a bit bad doing the surveys because I never answer a 
survey myself. I can't really annoy my surveys. <laughs> so I've done some surveys um, and I, I really started to speak to people a lot more about what their frustrations were um, and how long those frustrations were for, why they haven't specifically done anything about it. Just asking questions that um, led to try and build up a bigger picture about how to tackle a problem that is shared amongst many people. Um, so that was definitely one way I'd done it. Um, and then just reading articles, doing my research as well, um, and yeah, delving in deeper to other things that are published um, and seeing what the, the problem looks like outside of other people speaking, but actually the industry in itself. So I'm, I'm taking two lessons there. Um, Customer-focused market, market research, actually getting on the ground with the people who are purchasing the products and ensuring that you are not creating a drug for yourself. I think that's what mm -hmm. many companies do. They create their ideal drug and then yeah. they're surprised when no one else wants it. Two, you actually looked at some empirical evidence. You looked at the research out there. What does this look like as a problem from the business side? Now, you mentioned speaking to your pastor, people at church, saying, you know what, guys? Whilst we were worshipping, I just got a revelation. I know what I'm about to do. You had to sell that to people eventually. Now, we've all been there where we've struggled to sell something. And that thing initially is usually an idea. Can you talk us through the process of selling your vision to different people. And by this, I'm really interested in hearing how you sold it to family, you sold it to a wider community, let's say church, but then you actually started selling it to people within the industry. How did you do that? And what were the lessons that you learned on each occasion? Honestly, I've done it by sharing my, my lived experience first and foremost. And I think when you do it from that kind of place, you are just authentic. It's, it is what it is for you. So you just kind of share it with all your frustrations, the passion. Um, and I think that kind of allowed it to be more organic and just more transparent. I feel as though a lot of the people that I have shared my vision with and what I'm doing feel the same frustration to some level or degree. So there's an also, there's a level of understanding sharing it and um I think it's about the execution that people might be like okay I understand this problem I truly know that it's needed to be solved in some way shape or form but how are you going to go about doing it because I think the market looks very saturated um and essentially that's where the issue is in terms of the the kind of retailers that have um really taken a hold of of this market so it's always the how, but sharing the vision and kind of getting that across isn't really challenging, if I'm honest. It's usually done quite organically. And I think it's been an ongoing frustration for a lot of people. So, that, so they genuinely understand it and get it. And that's why I'm going to pause you there. I'm going to try to do a, a little bit more of a deep dive into you. Because you just said, well, sharing the vision hasn't been too difficult. For you, it hasn't. Because you, I don't want to say have natural skills to help you do that, but there are many people who are brilliant in what they do, but struggle to communicate their idea. Um, you do it really well. Is it because this is something you are truly passionate about and you are going to impose that passion on someone else listening? Is it because you've rehearsed it so many times? Is it because this is it for you really and there's nothing else? What? 
could it be? I really want to spend time trying to help others to understand how they could get to where you are. Because I firmly believe from spending time with you, you have natural qualities which many people have to work to develop. I think it's really interesting that you say that, actually, because my walk with um, my faith walk is really important to me. So I don't think it's a coincidence that this happened in church. Outside of that, however, I do truly believe this is what I'm called to do to, to a degree. I believe this is a massive part of my purpose and my calling and what God has kind of put me here on earth to do amongst other things but I definitely think this is one of them and I feel as though it is a bit of all of those things that you said I think it's my purpose I truly am so passionate about it because I think it's again it's my lived experience my level of frustration I think the market should look like people you know in that I, I understand I could identify with another person who has similar hair texture to mine because we have we face the same struggles, you know. So um I think it's really a um it's it's a blending kind of experience of, of all of those things, if I'm completely honest. And I feel really grateful because no matter if I share something with somebody and they roll their eyes or they're like, I don't know how you're going to do this, I know that I know that I know that it's going to be done. And I think there's also a level of conviction that just it sells for itself, you know. So, We're yeah. definitely I, going to delve into how, for many people, the market should look like those who it serves. But what yeah. you've mentioned right now in terms of people who believe in themselves, enable others to believe in them, is crucial. Yeah. I think there are many people out there who have an idea, but truth be told, they don't believe in themselves enough yet mm. to convince other people to believe in them. We buy into people. I'm going to buy into you before I buy into your business. Diane, I was ready to give you my pound. <laughs> I didn't know my pound was going to go into some edge control. But that's another story. Um, I'm going to bring Abby in. Abby, what are your views? Um, Diane, Afalabi has a current mission at the moment. He is convinced that there is some sort of innate element in people who are effective entrepreneurs. And he's on this mission to try and discover, you know, what is designed by God and what is learned along the way. So I've got a really weird question for you. And I'll start by talking about myself. Um, when I was in school, I was, that I was in the middle crowd of people. I wasn't the cool guy. I wasn't the, the nerdy guy. I was the guy in the middle. So I would be standing across the road, uh, across the school gates, after school, with a BMX and a Snickers in my hand, uh, waiting to see what the girls were saying um, at one point. And during lunch break, I was playing Yu-Gi-Oh cards um, and I was in chess club. So that was my story. That was the kind of weird person I was in school. What kind of, what kind of person were you at school? Oh, gosh. So uh, how would I describe myself at school? At school, I was, uh, okay, I stood out quite a lot at school simply because 
when I was in primary school, I had like all my friends. I was, you know, sometimes I'd be a bit cheeky and like the naughty one, but not naughty in like rude and disrespectful. Just I liked to get away with things or like, you know, if somebody caught me out on something, I would like worm my way out a bit and stuff. Um, and as I made some like really great friends in, in primary school, and as I went to secondary school the teachers would always say you know Diane's a great student but she's really easily distracted and stuff and I think my mum did not want any more headache when going to secondary school so she sent me to the furthest school that does not have any of my friends um and I was essentially I was the only person that went to my secondary school and in a way it was like the biggest blessing because from that really kind of vulnerable age where you're transitioning from you know being the eldest at one school to the youngest at a massive school and trying to you know find yourself and who you are going to be I truly believe that happens in like your secondary school years and to do that single-handedly and all by myself in an environment that I now have to make new friends I think that has helped me um, and has been such a massive foundation in why I am the way I am today. I can go anywhere by myself and not feel a type of way because I will make friends. I will connect with people because I know how to kind of make those conversations because I was set up from secondary school having to do that. And in secondary school, I managed to like make amazing friends. And I was like one of the very few black people. I went to a school that was that had quite a lot of, um, you know, there were people were pretty more privileged, I guess, than I was, and so um, you know that kind of class difference again made me open my eyes and made me think. I know I now have to work hard to be able to um, have certain things and like be a certain way in life and stuff. So, so yeah, but I was a little bit mischievous at school, and you know, my teachers. I was a good student, but I think my teachers was always like, great, I've got Diane today. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that's kind of how I was as a student. So it sounds like you've always had that outgoing spirit within you. And over time, you've kind of used your powers. You've learned how to use your powers for good. Um, yeah. And it, it, it's interesting because by putting ourselves in those difficult environments, putting ourselves outside of our comfort zone we learn whether we can sink or swim mm -hmm. and I think the lesson I'll take away from that is you're never too old to force yourself into an environment where you feel uncomfortable so that you can learn some of those skills like okay well how do I make new friends or how do I start conversations or how do I connect with people who are completely different from me whether it be different class different race different background you know, how do I learn those skills of being able to connect to anyone? So, yeah, really interesting. Yeah. The, the soft skills is the lesson I'm taking away and the intentionality. Like, your parent was intentional in terms of your schooling. And as a parent, I can't help but venture or veer a lot of conversations to parenting. Mm -hmm. That shift in your secondary education enabled you to be someone who could be independent and resourceful. You could spark a conversation. How do I know that? I remember the first two or three times we met and how you introduced yourself to me. Now, guys, this is late in the evening. I'm tired. And you get Diane in your face. Um, energy. All of energy. And you're like, I'm not ready. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> my money. <laughs> 
And it's incredible because it happened on a couple of occasions. And what I grew to learn was this is someone who is going to go very far. This is someone who, irrespective of whether you know them or not, if they want to spark a conversation or to create some form of connection, it will happen. And it's best for you just to embrace it and accept it that it's for your good and <laughs> keep it moving. Um, it's, it's incredible. And I think that is something which many entrepreneurs need to explicitly work on. We have to be able to spark a conversation with someone we don't know. How dare I want to sell a product to someone who's never met me but then I'm unable to speak to the person across the room from me. Yeah. Like, let's really let that sink in. Mm-hmm. So if I cannot do that, I shouldn't be entering into the arena. And because you have that in buckets, that's why, I, yeah, my bet's on you to really make this work. Thank you. That means a lot. Veering from soft skills. Okay. The Afro Beauty Company. Now, I grew up in Peckham, southeast London, and on the days where Mumsy wasn't being cruel and she wasn't getting me to go, you know, exchange her panties in Marks and Spencers, and she said, actually, you can just go get my braids from Pax or somewhere else. What surprised me was that going into Peckham High Street, all of the shops which sold us what we wanted, i.e. sold us our beef, our chicken, our other meat stuff, which a lot of people on this podcast might not even understand, or the hair products didn't look like us. And it took me a few years to realize that that's actually the norm. Mm. How do you respond to that? Oh gosh, with so much frustration, like so much frustration, because as I've been kind of delving deeper into um, this industry and this business, I've, been trying to look back at the history of how this happened and how this came about and unfortunately um I guess there was a little bit of maybe lack of wisdom or maybe it was that we didn't understand the power of the things that we have had um but I'm still diving deeper into truly understanding how this has happened because I, I don't know However, um, I truly want to be able to really change the narrative now because the fact of the matter is not only is society changing, but people are just being so much more mindful of where they shop, how they shop, what they buy, what they consume, what they put on their hair, what they put on their scalp. So regardless of what the history looked like, Um, I'm really hoping that changes um, and there's room for it. You know, there's so much room in the market for it. So, yeah, it's extremely frustrating beyond words. I'm saying that to just be polite and saying it in the most politest way. But it really is, honestly, um, yeah, it's such a shame if I'm completely honest. But hopefully, you know, the narrative can change and, um, yeah, we won't see those people. People listening, wondering, why is that a problem? What impact do you think it would have on the black community if the products that they consumed solely and the most were actually produced and sold by them? What impact do you think that would actually have? Sorry, say that again? So for those who are listening to you thinking, 
why is it a big deal? Like, I'm a Frenchman and I buy Korean cars or I consume things and my people consume things which we don't make. Um, for someone who is thinking that right now, what impact do you think the black community actually owning the produce that they consume the most would actually have on young boys and girls growing up, on men and women in their older age? I think it would do so much. Um, when it would be attainable, they can see someone that looks like them and know, I can do this, I can attain this. Um, I think it will help within our economy in that, you know, we can kind of gather together and have our own, have our own um, stamp on having things for ourselves. I also feel as though it's really important to know that I can always make something that I understand about myself, about my hair. If I'm formulating the products, I know that I'm providing the best ingredients for that actual source. And the thing about um, another community or another kind of ethnicity sourcing the products is they are sourcing it based off of whatever they are hearing through the grapevine is good. And actually, you know, some of the products that they provide aren't for us. They cause a lot of health issues for us. So it's about really learning and understanding what someone's hair needs, what someone's, you know, scalp needs. And unfortunately, they just don't have that information, you know. So, um, so I think it's important that our children see what is attainable so that they can do that for their generations and moving forward outside of the hair community. Um, and yeah, I think it's important for us to know that if it's for us, then if it's by us, then it will be for us in its entirety, you know? Absolutely. What, what you're saying really resonates with me. And I'd really like you to maybe expound on the idea in some communities that, especially among, among women, unfortunately, that they have bad hair or difficult mm -hmm. hair or, you know, their hair isn't beautiful. As part of um, the Afro Beauty Company, what, what are you doing to kind of combat some of those really damaging messages? So I really like to represent that through a lot of the images that I put on my Instagram and even through myself. So I struggled with this in that... Um, you know, I love my protective hairstyles and my go-to protect protective hairstyles is usually a weave. Funnily enough, I have not worn a weave for, I want to say it's coming up to two years, not because I don't love it, but actually I even had to kind of undo some um, conditioned truths that, is my hair beautiful? You know, my texture, is my texture looked at to be one of the nicer textures or one of the, you know, sought after textures in the ideal world is actually not like, yes, I get compliments on my hair, but I truly believe that is because I've learned to embody it. I don't think it's because it's the, um, the stereotypical, you have got the nice black hair type thing. So I think mainly through myself kind of really showcasing my hair and that I love my texture. I've learned to love it. And it makes me so sad to say that I have learned to love my hair. That wasn't just something I I kind of grew up loving. Um, but also I want people to understand that the protective hairstyles also are okay. It's 
fine to have a good weave, a good wig, as long as it's done properly, that it's not damaging your hair underneath. So my thing and the message that the Afro Beauty Company shares is that good, healthy hair is good hair. So as long as your hair is healthy, your hair is amazing, your hair is good. It's not about textures. I don't really conform to the, the 4A, 4B, 4C. I don't really conform to those types because, again, it puts you in a category and it put, puts you in a bracket sometimes that can be um, misunderstood. I think it's great so that you can identify with, okay, I might be in this cat category in terms of knowing that your hair might be finer or softer or, you know, whatever that may look like. But in terms of, you know, someone saying I've got 3A hair and someone's got 4C hair, I do think there are some stereotypes that aren't great for those as well. So, yeah, my thing is healthy hair is good hair. And as long as your hair is healthy, your hair is beautiful. I think that's a, a really powerful message. And I'm also interested to, to hear how maybe you've seen different generations act or respond to those messages. Are you seeing a, a shift maybe with the younger generation? A hundred percent I'm seeing a shift. I mean, um, you know, I've got children myself, although I've got boys, over the last year or so, they've wanted to grow their hair. So thank God I'm very hands-on. So I've been combing their hair and plaiting their hair and stuff. But even for them, they, as young boys, are embracing their hair. Outside of that, um, I am seeing a shift in the younger community. So my friend's daughters are learning to embrace their hair. I've got one friend who goes to a private school and the majority of girls don't look like her. I'm forever telling her your hair is so beautiful when she has it out or in two bunches. I'm like, I love your hair. You look so stunning. You look so beautiful because I want her to know my hair is beautiful, even though it doesn't look like my other counterparts who might be white or Greek or Turkish or whatever they look like, you know? Um, again, with my niece, she's been embracing her lovely curls and what have you. Um, and I do think the message is changing more and more for the younger generation. Uh, the older generation, however, I don't know if they are a little bit stuck in their ways, simply because when I cut my hair off, I felt like my mum thought my hair would never grow again. And she was like, because my older sister has her hair cut and she's always got, got her hair shaved. My mum's like, oh, I hope you're not going to turn into your older sister. And it's like, we are not defined by our hair. Yes, that our hair plays a massive part in our role, but just because my hair, my sister's hair is short, it doesn't take away from who she is, you know. So there is kind of, I, I hope the the gap, the the kind of um, stereotypes, kind of, I hope the gaps bridge a bit better with the older generation, you know, so that they can also help their grandchildren to love their hair and not be worried to cut it or trim it or to keep it healthy or you know if they want to have a bob they can have a bob if they want to ha have short hair they can have short hair if they want to have weave they can have weave um so i think it's fine from like the middle generation to the younger generation but the older generation to the younger generation is i find where the, the issues can be a little bit this narrative is being picked up a great deal in terms of modern day society, um, black people needing to own the way that they look. And it's listening to you, it, it, there was a moment which saddened me when you started speaking about your boys. Mm -hmm. because having a background in education and being fortunate enough to work in environments where we're sending kids to Oxford and Cambridge for fun, that's what we do. Mm -hmm. I know that the way a child looks 
is a determining factor to the way they'll be perceived and potentially yeah. success. And thus, it's stereotypically you focus on females, black girls. But I know that if a Caucasian teenager decides to grow out his hair, oh, you look like Justin Bieber just before he popped out. You look so cute. If a black boy decides to grow out his afro, um, there's a different perception. And it's, it's something which I believe we need to take control over it because it's yeah. not really a different perception in people who are not in the black community, but it's also a different perception within our own community. Yeah. Once you see that black male and he has grown out his hair, there's a perceived view on him and his value. What are your views on that? I 100% agree. Um, and actually, my eldest son was at a quite a strict Catholic school. And again, their hair had to be, you know, a certain way. And at first, like, again, I was fine with it because there was no like my boys have always been quite prim and proper with their hair and getting their hair cut every other week and what have you but when they wanted to grow their hair I wanted them to embrace that because growing up I changed my hair so much I went I love fashion so even through my clothes I was very expressive expressive I went through a stage where I literally had a ring on every single finger a gold ring sovereign rings on every single finger and one person might have thought oh you know she might look like this or she might look like that the one thing I've never done is I've never cared about what anyone thinks about me because I know who I am at heart and I truly think that when you do come across in that way people just love and accept you for who you are and I've aside from being biased because my boys are my boys they're amazing children they are really like special children and I want them to always walk in in their truth and feel 100% confident in their identity and I don't want them to be bound by their hair or by what they're wearing you know as much as I let them understand that their appearance, their appearance is important. I don't want it to take away from who they, they are. And I think that message does need to be shared a lot more in it being okay to have different hairstyles and that not define who you are. I was on a photo shoot with a really big um, influencer. He's become an influencer because his hair has been a massive determining factor with what sport he gets into. Why does he have to cut his hair? Why does he have to conform to what, a, you know, an educational um, constitution thinks is acceptable for him to study or do his work, do his, you know, work? It's, it bears no, it has no bearing on how he's going to perform in his education if his hair is right down to his legs or if it's cut in, a, in an amazing hairstyle, you know? I mean, unless research shows otherwise, um, I don't think how your hair is determines who you are as an actual individual, you know? Um, so I really try and let my boys embrace who they are in their entirety and not be defined by what society says, you look like this, you know? Um, so, yeah. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And for those who are wondering why we're veering off in terms of, like, social science and societal conversations... For me, entrepreneurship and society go hand in hand because entrepreneurs are reading society and responding to what society wants. And what I believe you've done with the Afro Beauty Company is you've read that society is saying no more. 
I no longer wish to put my pound, euro, or dollar into something which doesn't represent me no more. I no longer wish to fund people who are not actually funding the people that they're serving no more. I no longer wish to actually serve stereotypes and prejudices which are discriminating against the people who look like me. Mm -hmm. Going back to the Afro Beauty Company, you are doing something which, when I first heard of it, I thought, you know what, if she can execute this, like you mentioned previously, this is going to be huge. But we need it. We need someone to execute it. So can you just start to delve into a little bit as to what people can expect to see in the Afro Beauty Company now, but also what's coming in the future and how this it really is going to change again? Yeah, sure. So initially, before COVID came to, you know, change our whole lives um i was opening in westfield stratford city and the whole idea was really <laughs> to sorry sometimes i wish we like had like sound effects i think we need sound effects i'll, go, I'll, I'll drop a bomb in this fine i'll drop a bomb in. sorry <laughs> Diane, I'm a bit um and the whole idea um was to really reverse engineer um from going you know online to physical store it was also i really wanted to massively changed the experience of what people had currently experienced in you know where they go to shop I wanted to completely transform the kind of shopping experience in going somewhere where you have like cluttered products on dusty aisles the products are dusty you don't really know where you're going you haven't really got the right advice or expertise Um, and for me going in somewhere like Westfield was going to do that um the design setup that I had was really clean and very kind of um aesthetically pleasing it, it was it was like a great kind of luxurious environment but somewhere that you can go and feel comfortable in and you know have some consultations with trichologists and really be looked after so um that was really the um the foundation and what I wanted the Afro Beauty Company to embody it was very much an in-store experience, but being able to know that you're getting great products um, to facilitate healthy hair. Now that is online, um, I'm actually still kind of navigating that and really kind of understanding what that looks like online. However, it's been so great kind of looking at the data that I've been getting in. So essentially I want to do what I wanted to do in store online and be able to help people to get great products, great advice in one place, basically. So at the moment, you know, all the products that, um, that for beauty company stocks kind of has a detail of like the benefits and the key ingredients and, you know, um, how to use the product. And then it has a list of the full ingredients and people can come, they can send us a chat, a pearl chat is what it's called and ask for advice. And I really want to incorporate um, a trichologist um, section where people can actually get the, the necessary hair information they need for their specific needs. Because, you know, I can go to the NHS and if I've got a skin condition, I will get seen by a dermatologist and they will assess me for my specific needs. There isn't those kind of services available and I really want to be able to do that for hair because hair is really important and people do have issues with their scalp. 
only difference is if they do go to the NHS, they will get the standard, you know, shampoo that they give to everybody if they say they have a dry scalp or, you know, breakage of hair or what have you. So I think it's really important to draw the community together. I know there are only a few um, hair trichologists and they are a community in themselves. And I really want to have a platform where people can know it's the go-to place. I've got this hair problem. Let me book with them and kind of get the help I need. So, um, so yeah, that's the goal. So I, I think it's really interesting that I know exactly what a dermatologist is and what a dermatologist does. But I'm listening yeah. to you right now and talk about trichologists. And I can nod and smile like, yeah, I think I know what they do, but I'm not 100% sure. So for, for my benefit, what, what exactly does a trichologist do? So a trichologist, oh gosh, I hope I, you know, for their sake, get the definition right. But they essentially are specialists in hair and scalp. So they can look at your scalp and they can look at your hair shafts and they can assess what your issues are. Um, so they are essentially like dermatologists, but for hair, they can really um, delve in deep to everything from your nutrition. You know, it's not, I'm making it sound surface level in that, you know, they just have a look at your hair. It's an actual consultation that they have to go through in understanding your eating habits, your sleeping habits, you know, um, hormonal traits. Are you pregnant? Are you um, do you have any other kind of health conditions? It really is kind of a breakdown of you as a person and as an individual and your health um, habits. And, and um, yeah, them actually diagnosing whatever your hair needs are. And again, that can look different for everyone else. And this is the thing about hair care as well. You know, Google is amazing. That's how I learned a lot of things. However, there are so many factors in what can work from you versus what can work for somebody else, even if their hair looks like yours. So that's essentially what... Can, uh, can a trichologist tell me where my hair went? <laughs> Potentially, they might. They might even have be able to tell you if your hair can grow back, depending on, you know, maybe your diet or your hormones, maybe. <laughs> I am. When the door does open, please don't forget me because I don't like queuing. Um, <laughs> okay. I say that because when Abby and I were young, I'm talking about 15, 16, 17, half days from school, free time, we probably would have gone to West End and gone to Trocadero, arcade, and go shops. I can see the droves of teenage girls who are going to be queuing up in that store because you're offering an experience to ethnic women focusing on all of their hair and beauty needs in a prestigious environment like Westfield Shopping Centre. Mm -hmm. You already know the numbers in terms of the footfall. It's, yeah. it's truly going to be incredible. Um, Abby? Yeah, no, just to add to that, I think that the when, when we come and talk about beauty standards, we're talking predominantly about straight Caucasian hair, which is yeah. now seen as the, the archetype for, for beauty. But the, the amazing thing about the Afro Beauty Company is that we are talking about curly hair regardless of where you're from. And there are people from other backgrounds, you know, Turkish backgrounds or Middle Eastern backgrounds who have, who have curly hair who don't fit into the quote-unquote 
kind of beauty archetype who also need help around how to look after their hair, how to, to, to be impressed and proud of their hair as well. So I think this, this, uh, this company has got so much that it can provide to such a wide range of people, which I think is one of the, the key selling points that I'm interested about. People listening are like, okay, COVID hit, I feel for her, that would have been amazing, that would have been my summer sorted. When? When can I visit? Where exactly? Which floor? Am I able to bring my Starbucks in? So we were opening, um, well, we're going to open. If anyone knows, it's on the first floor, right by John Lewis, you've got the Costa, and then the Afro Beauty Company is right next to the Costa. Because of the current climate, um, the shop is going to postpone that opening to next year. And unfortunately, I don't know when that will be, just because the the climate is just so unpredictable at the moment. However, it will be opened in due time when it's safe to do so. Um, I think it's really important now to be mindful of the climate that we're in and um, just doing things safely, as safely as possible. And you know, I would. I don't think I would. I think I'd be doing myself a disservice if I didn't do things safely, being that all I care about is health and, you know, having clean products and doing things in a safe way. So I hope that that is soon and I hope that COVID just goes away for everybody so that we can open up ASAP and, you know, get people in, get kind of consultations going, get people in the flesh to, like, take pictures in our Instagrammable shop and stuff like I really cannot wait and I also just to have provide job opportunities for people that want to get into this industry and this field you know it's more than just um the Afro beauty company as a brand I think it's so important that nowadays your career could look like you know so many different things and I understand that there are people and that there are younger um you know, teenagers that want to have a career in the hair and beauty market but may not necessarily want to work in a salon. But again, this industry hasn't been able to serve that because there aren't shops available that like that, you know. So I'm really conscious in recruiting and making the recruitment process such that people can really grow and develop within the store setting as well. So um, I'm really excited to do that. Well, it's, it's amazing that you've gotten to this point even though COVID has kind of tried to step in and be an enemy of progress, it will not succeed. Um, but the fact that you've gotten to this stage is, is amazing. And I'd really like to hear a little bit more about how you got to got from having an idea about this amazing store to actually signing on the dotted line and having a physical location in one of the most you know, prominent uh, spaces in the country. So honestly, if I'm completely honest, it was a it was a faith walk, a hundred percent. So um, when I had this kind of revelation about the Afro Beauty Company, I truly believe that it was God sent. I I'm speaking as a believer, but I want anyone that's listening to just understand when you have a vision placed on your heart that is like clear as day. For me, it can only come from God. And, you know, I guess everyone identifies with, you know, whatever faith books they're on themselves. But for me, this was implanted by God. And I 
I feel that was confirmed more and more along my journey. So when I when I discovered that this was, you know, um, the vision, all I heard was this has to be in Westfield, Stratford City. That was all that I heard. However, where I lived at the time, there was um, a vacant space and I'd shopped in there for ages. It was a brilliant location. You know, the demographic was there. So I inquired about that store and it just wasn't sitting right with me. It just wasn't, it wasn't that for a beauty company. But I'd done it because it looked like it would be better. And also I thought, how am I going to get into Stratford, Westfield City? Like little old me, <laughs> how is that going to happen? So I spoke to my sister and I, I said to her, like, now I think this is, it has to be in Westfield. And she was like, yeah, of course. Like, she's like, all you need to do is like have a really good deck. You'll be fine. And I was like, a deck? What's that? <laughs> it's like, essentially, it's just a presentation, sharing your idea um, and having some like, you know, real concrete points about your business. Um, and, you know, basically a, a few page business plan put together that you can share. So I spent three months on working on a deck and I really put down like what I truly believe the vision was and the the, um, the basis of the business. So I reached out to some agents and an agent got back to me and was like, oh, this is great. Um, when would you like a viewing? And I was like, what? <laughs> So then I was, you know, just gave the day and stuff and went to have a viewing. And really that viewing was me pitching to Westfield at the time, little did I know. So I essentially pitched my idea. They thought it was great. Um, but it was so funny because I went in with all these things. And they were like, no, relax. It's not going to be that. But we can work with you to, you know, really put something together in order to, um see how this goes basically so there was a lot of learning along the way because there was a lot of things I had to put in place you know Westfield have got some really kind of um some really refined kind of um processes to go through rightly so so yeah I had to kind of go through all those processes hire a team and um really get that done but I'm so grateful that I've done it and Westfield were really great and very accommodating um, in doing so so that's like the backstory of it all really that's amazing and I think for me the biggest takeaway there is the importance of being ambitious I think a lot of people never truly reach their potential because they're maybe a little bit intimidated by the the position they have to put themselves in in order to get to what they want you know, standing in front of some really senior executives at Westfield is quite intimidating. But if you didn't put yourself in that position, you wouldn't be where you are now. So the lesson to take away from that and for anyone listening is don't dumb down, don't dull down your vision just because it seems unattainable. Be ambitious. And the worst case scenario is a no. But the best case scenario is that you get what you want. Exactly. Definitely. Be ambitious and write the vision and make it plain. Yeah. Um, we believe in writing visions down. And it's, it's, a, it's a biblical principle. And one of the benefits of it is that it will stare back at you. It's mm -hmm. no longer one of those fleeting thoughts that you have in your mind, which just disappears. But you canonizing it and recording it will actually just force you to decide, are you going to 
pursue this or not? Are you going to screw that piece of paper in the bin and kill it yourself right now? Or are you going to actually start building upon it? And that's what we saw you do. Um, it's, it's incredible how you chose not to have all of your eggs lined up neatly before you actually decided to make your omelette. You learn along the way, which many people don't wish to do. They want to have everything tied down to the team. Yes, you spent three months on the, the business day, but that's, that's perfect because you were writing that vision and it wasn't a simple statement. It was one which you were iterating and working along and not showcasing for someone else until you thought it was something worth showing. I think many people could benefit from just taking those principles and applying it now to that idea which they have already, but they're allowing just to flitter away. Incredible. Okay, so you are now in Westfields with these business execs. How does that feel as a black woman? Oh my goodness. So I was so nervous simply because I also didn't prepare. I didn't know that that's what I was going to do. Um, and it was hilarious because actually when I got there, you know, my agent was like making it like, oh, you know, this is fine. It's not a big deal, what have you. And I'm glad she did make it feel like it's, it weren't that because if she made it any more than that, I think it, I would have been more nervous. But it was so funny because they were like, oh, we've only got the biggest um, room available, the biggest meeting room. So I was in this large room with these two executive, um, the lease executives of Westfield and my agent. Um, and at the time I was just thinking, I physically cannot believe this is happening. Like of all things as well, to be in like the biggest conference room, like I promise you it was huge. <laughs> to then stand and pitch in front of these three people is wild. But again, I was organic and I just shared my story. And the beauty of it was that, so it was one male, one female, sorry, one, one the, the Westfield, the executives of Westfield was one male, one female, and my agent was a female. These are all white people. And um, the lady, the one, the lady that it was the executive, had the same issues with her hair. So she was saying, um, you know, her frustration has been. She, she, she basically was able to identify. She was saying how um, she just remembers growing up with her mum sitting her in the bath with conditioner in her hair, you know, just combing it out and struggling to get it combed out. And she was like, that's why I always wear my hair straight because I actually can't really find products that work for my curly hair. So I always have my hair straight. I never embrace my curls. And I was like, look at it there. This is a prime example that this isn't about ethnicity. Essentially, it is about people with curly and textured hair type. So it was just so funny how I was speaking directly to my target audience, you know. Um, and I think that definitely helped in them understanding that this is definitely something that needs to be done. Westfield haven't got a shop that is specifically aimed for this either. So, you know, they definitely saw the niche and were excited to work with a business that has such a niche in, in Westfield. So it was, it was a great experience. I, honestly, I wish I could have recorded the whole thing. People speak about staying ready, but I firmly believe that you're always being interviewed. Um, it's something which I frequently say to people that I work with, to try to help them to understand that I'm not doing this, but subconsciously I am. Yeah. But consciously everyone else is interviewing you all the time. You need to understand that that stay ready message 
isn't a Facebook status. It's not a hashtag. It has to be a lifestyle. Come prepared. Because at any moment, you could have that opportunity standing right in front of you. And if you fail to execute, you might not even know. It's not that you regret it, but you might not even know that that opportunity is one. Having yeah. Um, yeah, just, you know, sometimes when you're actually taking a step back from a conversation that you're in and just absorbing the information. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't think it's a coincidence, the people that you had in the room at the time. Um, and I think that's part of my faith coming out in that I do feel like when you are on a mission and your purpose is clear, then things align for you. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one question I do have around this is just in order to make your vision a reality, you can't do it by yourself. No woman is an island, no man is yeah. an island. One thing I know about you is you're an extremely proactive, positive person. So I'd just like you to maybe tell me about some of the other partnerships, some of the relationships that you've had to build to make this a reality. And this can be relationships that have been successful and maybe even relationships where you were like, well, this isn't going to work or this isn't what I'm looking for. So, yeah, I mean, I really do feel I've been really blessed along the way to have met some great people who have been, like, such an amazing helping hand. But with the whole, um, you know, navigating through this whole Westfield period, I've had to hire along the way. And I found that, if anything, the difficulty of this process has been the hiring process because, one, I've been, I'm new at it, so with everything that you're new at, sometimes you are really trying to navigate what that looks like. And sometimes you don't know what you what you need in an employer, employee, sorry. So when you're recruiting someone and you don't necessarily know what you're looking for, you're kind of expecting them to tell you what you need once you've shared what it is that you are hiring for, if that makes sense. So um, one of one of the team that I had to hire at the beginning honestly it was amazing it seemed great but as time went on I realized that they didn't actually have the capacity to work with a startup like myself I want to be a part of the process in its entirety this is my baby this is like I have the vision for everything I'm doing and I need to be able to share that clearly to get it executed and as you said, Abby, I can't do that by myself. Um, and so I thought I was quite a thorough person in even how I kind of break things down or how I will assess something being the right thing. Um, however, I've learned that sometimes things, things can look like what it is that you want, but it's not that until you delve deeper into that relationship. So, um, so yeah, one of my hires wasn't the greatest. Um, I would say the job got done into a standard that I was happy with, but it didn't really end in the best way. And not it didn't end in a bad way, but just not in a way that I would have liked it to have ended. And it was very eye-opening because what I actually realised was I think there was just a level of frustration in that I'm a very detailed person and I like to know the ins and outs. And as a startup in this field a lot of things are new to me so explaining that may just seem annoying to someone that doesn't have the capacity to do that 
And I think over time, that's what that kind of relationship became. However, the blessing in having that kind of experience allowed me to make sure that anyone else I'm hiring for my team or to be a part of my team has the capacity to be able to talk me through things, to help me understand, okay, this is what you need to do. This is what this looks like. Um, You know, just to really kind of break things down as we go along. Because for me, you know, this shop and rest build is hopefully the first of many. This isn't the first time I'm going to do this. So I actually need to learn the key foundations of what that looks like now. So I'm better prepared for shop number two and shop number three and shop number 100, you know. Um, and it just helped me hire better and ask the questions that I need to ask to recruit the right people. So I'm really grateful for that kind of difficult recruit because it helped me to recruit better as time has gone on and even today, you know, so. Um, two things that I want to pull out from what you're saying, which just, yeah, really, re- really ring home to, to, to me and I'm sure Afalavi as well, because we've had some of these pains ourselves. Um, the value of when you have a potential employee who can tell you what you need. And I'm saying that as somebody who is an employer and an employee. Whenever I go in into a whenever I go into a space where I am maybe looking for a promotion in my nine to five, if I'm interviewing, I know how important it is for me to tell the employer, I know what you need. And I've also identified things that you don't even know that you need, but I've also got the til- the tools to help you through it. So that 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 is a message of encouragement to anybody who is currently in a corporate environment or in an environment where they are an employee. Whenever you're going into that environment, make sure you're thinking about what people need that they haven't even identified yet, because it's going to help you stand out. And then the other point that I wanted to pull out was just the importance of hiring practices. And I'll, I'll get your, your view on this as well. But from what you said, it resonates with something that Afalabi and I have spoken about previously, which is somebody could do an amazing interview. but when you actually get them in your work environment, you realize that they don't have all of the skills you need to be successful. It's like going on a first date. When you go on a first date with somebody, you know, they're absolutely fantastic. You don't notice everything like, oh, you might not notice that they um, are really messy or they've got bad breath or all of these other things. You find that stuff out later down the line. So the way that we try to address that, um, Afalabi and I, is actually by hiring slow and firing quick so when i say hiring slow it doesn't mean we have a very long drawn out interview process but we have a long probation period so somebody impresses us you work for us immediately or as soon as we can get you on board but rather than interviewing you in front or you know in a in an office we're interviewing you while you're in action so you're actually doing the job in probation and then after three months or so, then we'll make a decision whether you're a good fit or not. Um, as startups, we're not privileged enough to have, you know, drawn out six-month interview process. We need to onboard people on quick. But by having that long probation period, we can examine people while they're working and see if they can do what they said they could do. I wonder if that sounds like your approach or whether you take a slightly different approach. I think it depends what it's for, if I'm honest, because if something is project-based, 
you have to hire for them to start the project and essentially complete it. It'll be really difficult for someone to then take over that project if they, you know, maybe use a different program that the other person used. And also, again, um, you're going in with this being your team. So you're introducing everyone as who they are, like for, you're introducing people in that actual um, position in that team, within that team. So to then have to redo that, again, it's it's challenging, like I said, depending on what it is. So, um, but I think if it's something like, you know, if I was hiring for the store and they were a sales assistant or a manager, those principles would work amazingly because, you know, you're just seeing their work ethic, you're seeing how great they are in their role. But something that's project-based, you're essentially kind of going by their portfolio, seeing the work that they've done, basing it off of that initial interview and hoping that, you know, what they have delivered in the past, they're going to deliver to you. But again, you don't know the capacity they've delivered it in. So I think a big thing for me is to make sure I get some solid references because I guess that would give me a better example of how they've worked in the past with smaller companies and bigger companies and what have you. Um, and I guess actually it, it helps you, um, so it, it makes you better informed in that one of the, the um, one of the people that I was employing actually didn't, hadn't worked with small companies really before. So again, that should have been an eye opener in seeing that they may not have the capacity capacity to work for me. However, because they had been worked with established companies, that's what gave me the the kind of stance to think they may be able to work with me because they have worked with established companies. So they might be, you know, it's it reversed my thinking. When actually, sometimes you just have to see things for what they are and really assess that and say, will this company or this person be great for me, you know? No, I mean, and, and the business as well. Make, makes makes a lot of sense. Um, last question for me, how, how important is it for you to connect with these people when working with them? So on a um, social slash personality level, how important is it that you actually feel like, you know, these people connect with you rather than maybe are just fantastic at their job again I think it depends a little bit like at first it was really important for me I want to be able to have a great relationship with anyone that I recruit but I think that's just me by default I like to really connect with people on a deeper level I'm not really that surface level um and so that is important for me however um, with one of my recruits, it it is very business. How it, it is very business focused. However, um, you know, whenever I drop them an email, and even through this COVID, you know, time, I have emailed them and tried to keep that relationship open to just check in on them and that you know, just make sure that they're okay and notify them, you know, when things are going to be up and running or what have you I'll be back in touch and just keeping those conversations open but I understand that actually they wouldn't really be within my social bubble so um so yeah I, I do think again that things like that depend but 
as a whole, I would really like to have um, a great kind of connection with whoever I, I recruit. And if that could be on a social level too, that would be great. However, boundaries sometimes can be blurred if you have like great social connections. And then, you know, when it comes to the working environment, it becomes difficult. So, yeah, I think it's, you've just got to be really mindful and apply wisdom in how you go about doing it. Agreed, agreed. We're starting to veer into the one question which we do ask all of our guests. And we try as hard as possible to personalise all of the conversations because each individual is unique. But this is expensive lessons. And the reason why I truly love this podcast is I'm a firm believer of learning from other people's errors. Um, as a child, I was told that that was wisdom. Learn from other people's mistakes. Um, and we have a great opportunity to actually speak to successful people who are emotionally intelligent and vulnerable enough to actually share some of their expensive lessons which they've made along the way. If I was to ask you which expensive lesson really stands out in this journey, um, which would you say? Definitely the one I described um, in, in who I recruited for one of those projects, um, simply because for me, I really struggled to express how um, unprofessional I felt they were because there was this expectation and I think I genuinely took a liking to that person. So I just felt it was really difficult to, to yeah, navigate kind of how to deal with it I, I really did struggle and it really helps me to become more firm and assess how I recruit moving forward you know um but yeah I think that was that was definitely the most expensive lesson and the most challenging one um yeah listening to you recite it I hear the pain <laughs> and it's something which many startup entrepreneurs experience it's a common mm -hmm. error it's one that we've experienced um i know that you've listened to the podcast thank you we value your listen okay. um, <laughs> we had the building a team episode and mm -hmm. i refer to her as weapon x yeah i listened to that i loved that episode because i could identify with it so much <laughs> for those people who are listening Diane really slowed down and she, she chose her words carefully, just reciting that experience. And it was a painful one. And it's because for us entrepreneurs, it really is our baby. Mm -hmm. And metaphorically, what's happening is we're handing our baby to someone else who's deciding to take them on a joyride, um, take them on a three-week bender. They just go missing. And what we're calling them asking, is, is the baby okay? And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't worry. We'll be back soon. And we're being polite because we don't want to, you know, start effing and blinding in front of our children. But we just want our baby back. Yeah. So, yes, it's something which offline, I think Abby and I potentially speak about because we're, we're seeing it so often. Um, mm. it, it's something which so I, I do a bit of mentoring. Abby works extensively with many companies, with Consec, and we're just seeing that pattern. Startup businesses make poor recruitment. Um, 
this is opportunity where people who are like, well, okay, this woman's opening the Afro Beauty Company in Westfield. Okay, we know it's happening in 2021. I want to be able to, to find out more, you know, when it exactly opens. Can you now share your details? I'm talking about everything, like mobile number, address, date of birth. I'm joking. So, <laughs> social media, where can we find the Afro Beauty Company? Yeah, sure. So, um, www.theafrobeautycompany.com is the website. You can join the newsletter and mailing list by just subscribing um, below on the page. You can find the Afro Beauty Company Instagram at the Afro Beauty Company. That's on Facebook and Instagram. And on Twitter, it's the Afro Beauty Co. Um, and yeah, so if you join our mailing list, you will definitely be updated on all the great things that we have coming up and when the store opens and all the stuff we have going on online. Um, and yeah, that's nice <laughs> People, we're, we're very highly selective as to who we invite. Um, I know, I feel honoured to be on this podcast, mm-hmm. honestly. We feel honoured because we know who you are it's not that when we know what's coming because it's not about the afro beauty company i firmly believe as abby mentioned i'm on this mission to really delve into the minds of entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and there is something whether it's a resourcefulness whether it's the necessity you're a mother to two sons your growth is their growth there are, there are so many nuances to why entrepreneurs are successful and i think today you shared some you shared the ability to effectively convey a vision. You shared the significance of purpose and spirituality, faith, that inner drive. You shared the willingness to actually go away and produce your deck, writing the vision down. You shared your courage to actually share it in an open space where you are going to feel very small, but you did it. So I'm hoping that everyone who's actually listened today is taking inspiration, deciding to do it. Um, if you are doing it, let us know, people. Let us know on the Instagram. If you have any questions for Diane, let us know so we can get it to her. Diane, um, we will be speaking to you very soon. Um, definitely oh. before the next time you're on the podcast, because we've partnered. We believe in this, people. This is going to be huge. So for me, Diane, thank you ever so much for joining us, um, especially now. I know that there's so much more to come. So yeah, God bless you and your business. Thank you so much. God bless you too, both. Honestly, you guys are amazing and I'm so grateful for you having me on here. So thank you so much. Abby, final words. Oh, what do I end this on? Um, I would just say to people who are listening to this and maybe identify with Diane as somebody who's got a vision, but maybe don't feel that they have the the external confidence or the external skill set that she presents. This is something that can be learned and it can be learned by putting yourself outside of your comfort zone. We've heard from Diane's story that she's always had this flair for, for being an extrovert, but she's found herself along the way in rooms surrounded by very intimidating people. And these are the times when you sink or swim. So my encouragement to you, my challenge to you is do what she did and put yourself out there. Put yourself in an uncomfortable situation to really test what you're made of. Um, That's it from me, Diane. You know how much I love you. I think you're amazing. 
um, we'll definitely be catching up with you again and yeah this has been another episode of expensive lessons the company directors share with you the fruits of their labor and this week we managed not to cry or insult anyone so i'm really happy about that um look forward to catching up with you guys next week take care everyone thank you everyone bye 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 take care